Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about burlesque. We're talking about it with the great Remy D. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall, and Remy D., of course. We'll be joined by them both. We'll talk about burlesque. If you don't know about You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, we start by talking about a movie. We talk about the feelings that the movie evokes or various elements of our lives, our mental health, our paths as humans, stuff that's revealed and touched on in the movie itself. Uh, So it's, you know, kind of a movies podcast. We talk about the movie a great deal, but we also talk about ourselves, our lives, what it's like to be human. If you're new to the show, welcome. That's what you're in for. Burlesque is a 2010 American backstage musical film written and directed by Steve Anton. It stars Cher, Christina Aguilera, Kristen Bell, Stanley Tucci, Alan Cumming, Peter Gallagher, and more. The film tells the story of Allie Aguilera, an aspiring singer who leaves her small hometown for Los Angeles, where she becomes a dancer at a struggling burlesque lounge owned by Tess, played by Cher. Remy D, also known as made clear by her website as the cure with the curves. I initially read that as the curse with the curves and I take either. I'm into cure with the curves. I'm into curse with the curves, either one. But Remy specifically is cure with the curves. We love Remy. Remy is a a friend of the show, a listener to the show for a long, long time. I met Remy in Nashville. And Remy reached out at some point and was like, you know that I'm a burlesque performer. Why don't we talk about the movie Burlesque? And we were like, hell yes. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what it gets right. Let's talk about what it gets wrong. Let's talk about if it even has any burlesque elements in it. Again, Remy's a hell of a burlesque performer. Check her out. You can find all of her information linked in the show notes. You can find us on social Twitter, Blue Sky Threads. I'm on TikTok. I'm doing TikToks that come from the show. You can find us in all those places. On Instagram, we have Reels. We put up a little reel about our conversation talking about Tori from Saved by the Bell and the role that Liana Creel, who played Tori in Saved by the Bell, had in producing. But I'm a cheerleader. We put that up there. And someone tagged Creel and uh, Creel responded was truly amazing, truly wonderful. You know, when people say nice things about a person, uh, it's nice to bring that person in and be like, look, these people are saying nice things about you. Don't do that with uh, when people say mean things. <laughs> Usually they know, you know, and they don't want to be brought into it. But this was really nice to have an opportunity for Liana Creel to hear us say the nice things that we feel about her. And about how we uh, see her as an icon in our lives for representation and for making stuff that gave us representation. That's all cool. But anyway, she said she was glad to hear us talk about her and the way that we did. And I thought that that was cool. Very nice to hear from you, Liana Creel. If you're newly listening to the show, welcome aboard. I saw Speedy Ortiz the other day. We met Sadie of Speedy Ortiz while out on the road for the You're Wrong About tour. Sadie put up high in Jamie Loftus's face on stage. And it was great. But anyway, they were coming through town. Check out Speedy Ortiz if you are not already checking out Speedy Ortiz. You Are Good is made possible with and by your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You make the show possible. We couldn't do it if uh, there wasn't some money on the table to pay everyone who's a participant in the show. So you make that possible. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. If you are not a person who is supporting or able to support, these are the folks who are making it possible. So uh, we all thank them. We, we appreciate them. And in exchange, 
for your support. You get bonus episodes. We've been involved in this ongoing series talking about Carrie Bradshaw and Hannibal Lecter. Uh, Sarah and I and our friend Eve Lindley were just chatting about the movie Debs. So I don't know. Maybe that'll be a bonus. Who knows? Who knows? We never know what's coming up in the bonus land. But you get bonus episodes by supporting the show. And thank you so much for supporting the show. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. All right, let's get into it. Let's sing some songs. Let's see a little skin. Let's shake our tush, tushes, tushies. Let's talk about burlesque. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex D. That was my share impression. That was so bad. Sarah, I throughout this movie was like prepping to maybe do a share impression and I was like I don't even know what one's voice has to do to get there <laughs> well did you ever see the this is one of my favorite things that ever happened in TV there's an episode of Will and Grace where Jack got a share doll Ooh, no I have not seen this like they go out for breakfast and they have to wait for a four top to become available so share can have a seat <laughs> and then the like capper the like closing joke for the episode is that the real share turns up obviously of course and Jack thinks that she's a Cher impersonator drag queen. <laughs> He's like, this is how you do Cher. He's like, you think so? Ho! Oh, oh. <laughs> Did she reciprocate, I hope? I think she <laughs> says, snap out of it. <laughs> <laughs> she says, I'll kick you till you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Alex, you're going to become the first ever Olympia Dukakis impersonator. That's not true. There's probably 35 of them. But you'll be good at it. If I do drag, I will do it as Olympia Dukakis. In Moonstruck. You just come out, you look around at everyone, you say, your life is going down the toilet. And very occasionally, I'll do a look who's talking Olympia Dukakis. And then Sarah she can Marshall. talk about her cousin, Michael. Yes, I'm Sarah Marshall. <laughs> You you have the vibe of a person who just took burlesque into your body. Yeah, I did. I raw dogged burlesque and it was all I ever wanted. We're talking about burlesque. Um, <laughs> we're talking about burlesque with each other, of course, but we're also talking about it. This movie was, I think, suggested to us or recommended to us somewhere around 150 years ago by Remy D. Her patients so appreciated and we're finally here we're finally doing it we appreciate it remy hello hello tell us about you and tell us about why you're bringing us burlesque my name is remy d and i am a a real burlesque performer Ooh, la, la. not an imaginary burlesque performer i born and raised in new orleans and now i live in nashville tennessee i perform in both cities i have been a professional burlesque performer for about 12 years and i think i've been good at it for maybe eight that's a great ratio that is a great ratio i always you know when you hear people who are performers in your case uh remy and burlesque and then people who are in stand-up when they talk about their careers they usually talk about exactly as you said that there was five years of getting there like what was it like in those first five years <laughs> well i'm not a trained dancer believe it or not mm. i got i got kicked out of ballet when i was four for reasons but <laughs> A knife fight. <laughs> but but I did grow up doing theater. And of course, I saw my first burlesque show in 2009 in New Orleans. And just like Allie in the movie, I fell in love. I'm like, I want to be part of this. 
I started as a singer, but then the more I watch the other dancers, the more it's like, you know, this isn't as complex as ballet, not all the time. I think I mm. could do this. It's a very accessible art form, but you do still have to put in the work. You do still have to put in the practice and get your stage time, get your confidence. Um, so I think the first couple of years was me doing that, just finding my footing, finding my my voice, my style, and gathering, you know, a couple uh, unnamed numbers worth of costumes and rhinestones <laughs> over the years. Yeah, that makes sense. Sarah, are you, are you, uh, have you ever burlesque, been in a burlesque situation? Have you ever gone to a show or been on stage in a burlesque form? Uh, no, which is funny to me. I mean, I've seen, you know, drag shows and I've seen strippers, but I, I haven't which is funny to me because when I was growing up, this was exactly the kind of movie that I liked. And I was particularly obsessed with flash dance as a 13 year old. And I understood kind of one of the ultimate sources of power and joy to be public sexy dancing. <laughs> well, you're and you are a Portlander. Oh, I thought you were going to say, and you are correct. Yeah, I am a Portlander. So it's kind of a Cole to Newcastle kind of a thing, I guess. Yes, you are correct. And you are a Portlander, a city built on the belief in what you just said. No, we're actually built on the bones of massacred Chinese people. But <laughs> we do have a lot of strip clubs and it's really nice. I want people to know I'm not laughing at the fact. Mm -hmm. I'm laughing at the the truth, kind of. <laughs> You're laughing at the fact that I just kind of threw that in there. Exactly. Yeah. But it's true, and we should talk about it more. Portland is a little too high on its horse. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> but Remy, what was your first experience with this movie, and uh, why is it one uh, that, yeah, you know, I understand you have overlap in profession, but why is it one that you want to talk about? This movie actually came out around the time when I was getting my own start in burlesque, when I started going to shows more frequently and I was trying very desperately to get on stage. And of course, everybody in the business, there was a lot of buzz like, oh, is, are more people going to come to burlesque shows after this movie comes out? And then the movie comes out. We discover there's no real burlesque in it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's hints of it. There's little glimmers of it. But when the movie came out, I do remember there were a lot of classes being offered. A lot of dance studios were offering, like, come take the burlesque class. You're going, we're going to do a routine to the song Show Me How You Burlesque. And it was around the same time that the Daniel Day-Lewis movie Nine came out with um, oh. Fergie and uh, Penelope Cruz and Fergie sings a wonderful song called Be Italian. And they were all and all, mm. they were also offering classes. Learn a burlesque routine to be Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I truly feel like you're making this. I know that this is true, I'm sure. No, but it's it, just that 2010 feels like it never happened. <laughs> all these facts feel hard to deal with. <laughs> because our biggest concern, and to be fair, it was a big one. But like, I feel like the big news stories around 2010 were like, Rupert Murdoch is hacking the phones of murdered teenagers and like, yeah, that's really bad. But it, it wasn't it wasn't like now. No. <laughs> yeah. And it was just but it wasn't burlesque dancers teaching these classes. It was just, you know, your day to day dance studios calling it a burlesque class, even though there was no actual striptease in this choreography. However, I do remember there being an influx of more people taking burlesque classes from actual burlesque dancers. Yeah, it's interesting that this was also, you know, roughly the era of Fifty Shades of Grey and this resurgence 
or the surgeons, I guess, of like <laughs> people feeling like kink was in the mainstream and yet it wasn't in the mainstream, but it was something calling itself that. That's exactly it. Which is fascinating. It is fascinating. What were we on about? Sarah, let's, I am excited to unpack what we were on about. Yeah. I am giddy to hear Sarah's plot of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Oh my God. For anyone who, for whatever reason, didn't catch burlesque in the theaters in 2010 or didn't catch it. First of all, what was your fucking problem? Right, what's your, <laughs> what happened to you? Yeah, for anyone who hasn't caught it, didn't catch it, catch it then or hasn't caught it recently, can you just uh, walk us through the plot? I sure will. And I, I begin with my largest complaint about the film, which is that we open with an establishing shot panning down to Dwight's bar where Christina Aguilera, our 30 year old ingenue, not complaining, I'm a 35 year old ingenue, is working her last shift in her small town Iowa home. This is a very fast establishing shot because they're trying to hide the fact they probably just drove out to like Barstow yeah, totally. and shot it there. Absolutely. And I am not an expert. On Iowa, there could be places in Iowa that look like this one day out of the year for five minutes. <laughs> but like Iowa's, look, Iowa sucks in many ways, but it's a beautiful place and it's very green and verdant. And that would be a good contrast with the concrete animal that is Los Angeles. But no, we just had to just do this. <laughs> I think what happened was they could have gone to Iowa or they could have sprung for one more costume. And, uh, right. They did that. <laughs> but Alex, they didn't have to go to Iowa. They could go to Pasadena. That's true. They could have yeah, just driven an extra five miles out. <laughs> yeah. And I was watching this movie yesterday while I like did stuff in my kitchen. And I just had the time of my life because this is like this is the movie of the grade, like perfect to make egg salad while watching. <laughs> and this movie is entirely comprised of cliches, but they're all the cliches that I love the most. Yes. Ingenue leaves her small town where she has nothing holding her down and heads to the big city where she stays in a seedy motel and the cash is taken out of her toilet tank, just like in Pretty Woman. This movie is also like, and I love this movie, okay? I'm insulting it because I love it. This movie is also the most obnoxious kind of musical, which is like a musical where characters simply sort of step forward at random points and are like, time to do a pop song. <laughs> it doesn't connect to anything, but I'm doing it in the movie and my character's doing it. So they're trying to make it make sense that this character would just start singing. It's not like one of the, the older musicals in the golden age where they're just they're so full of emotion that they have to start singing this i feel like this is like the the movie once where whenever they do start singing and playing yeah. music it's uh part of the plot and it just moves forward with the story mm. but some of that just kind of sticks out even more than somebody just breaking out in a song like later totally. when, in the movie when Cher is singing her beautiful ballad <laughs> that felt it, it's it's wonderful i love that song but it sticks out. <laughs> yeah. And that's like my favorite part of the whole movie because Cher's like working late and this guy shows up and he's like, hey, we got to do your big musical number for the movie. And she's like, oh, oh, I lost track of time. Oh. And he's like, do you want to just do it tomorrow? She's like, no, let's just do my big musical number for the movie 
now. Yeah. And it's like the characters are talking about how to do the movie and then she does it and it's great and you're transported but you're like why did we have to have that conversation (laughs) (laughs) yeah this this again this is all said with love this was a romp but it's two hours long for that reason yeah there's a lot of setup for the thing that's gonna happen that really we could have just burst into but it's fine (laughs) yeah it's really good it's it's really like of its moment and like it's like a Franken movie made of the pieces of 100 other movies as well. <laughs> like there's some flash dance in here. There's obviously a lot of showgirls in here. This is the movie yes. you show your tween sister to like get her ready for showgirls. Yes. Yeah, this is just showgirls. Yes, it's showgirls. <laughs> but without all the sex work and the yeah. weird, you know, angry lesbianism. It's just missing a little Gina Gershaw. I'm getting a little too old for that horror look. (laughs) (laughs) So when I started watching this movie, I was convinced the love interest was played by Tyler or Taylor Kitsch from Friday Night Lights. But it is, in fact, someone named Cam Gigande. (laughs) That can't be right. Who I think was in Twilight? The bad vampire from Twilight. Oh, my God. He looks like he killed someone recently. (laughs) He has no affect, and he looks like a droog from uh, Clockwork Orange. Like He is dressed like a droog. My God. <laughs> yeah, instead of all white, he's in all black. Yes. I was thinking they were doing like a weird cabaret homage, but no. I appreciate the guy liner. Yes. And Jack, we my burlesque friends and I joke about this. He's the only one that does like a real true burlesque act in the movie. The scene where he's coming out to get cookies. <laughs> yeah. And he's gradually losing clothes every time he comes out, which I thought was a very cute scene. I thought they actually had chemistry in that scene. Totally. But that is the most, that's very burlesque what he did. Aww. Proud of you, Cam. That's so great. So Nomi Malone, I mean, Christina Aguilera, her name is Allie cat probably (laughs) her name is alice marilyn rose oh come on have an ugly name that's her name i had to look at wikipedia to confirm this but yes alice fishbein over here (laughs) Allie rose shows up in what i have to assume is downtown la definitely and so she like goes and pounds some pavement. She's looking for a job. She wants to be like a backup singer. She wants to sing because she sang a big pop song before she left Dwight's in the California desert part of Iowa. And she's out walking around all day. And then she like stumbles into a burlesque club on the Sunset Strip. And Alan Cumming is there, but they seem to have only had him for like five days. Yeah. At most. <laughs> <laughs> and good for him. He has stuff to do. Alan coming in this movie is like if they if someone gave you a meal, but they put all of the best spice that would have gone in the meal on the side. And they were like, you figure it out. Or in like the tiny appetizer. Yes. <laughs> you, get, you get a really great tiny appetizer and then you get the rest of it. And you're like, where's the tiny appetizer? Yeah. Alan coming. This movie's only deep crime. Outside of not utilizing burlesque. (laughs) I love Alan Cumming with all my heart. I've seen him perform live. And I am deeply upset for two reasons. One, as y'all said, he's very underutilized in this movie. But also, he makes an anti-strip club. 
joke. Oh, he does. Yes. Oh, what does he do? He says when she comes in and sees the performers dancing, she says, is this a strip club? And he says, I should wash your mouth out with Jägermeister. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, no, please don't do that. (laughs) There is something authentic about a gay man of a certain age saying something uh, (laughs) off-putting. Fair, fair. Which, I'm not justifying it. Yeah. He can say something else (laughs) off-putting, and then we would be doing great. I'm not defending it. Go to strip clubs, everybody. Spend your money. It's 2010. There's plenty more off-putting jokes coming (laughs) later in the movie, pun intended. Yeah. Well, and and in 2010, it also feels crucially like sex positivity was still like a very fringy idea. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this movie, you can see that in this. And like, I don't know, Fifty Shades of Grey fits really interestingly into that, too, because it's like sex, but only for the attractive still, <laughs> you know? Sure. And sex for the unattractive is really my main position if I ever get into politics, which is to not call anybody unattractive by objective standards, but to say that, like, we have this pervasive myth in media that, like, especially in 2010, I think our cultural idea of sex was like two perfect torsos sort of bumping against each other without anything really happening. And that, like, there's some kind of connection in American media between, like, sex and the being sexually attractive to anybody and the ability to sell Neutrogena. And I feel like you can see that in this movie. Right. Going back to the um, the anti-strip club sentiment, it's gotten much better these days, like most things have, a lot more sex positive. Just in general, I do remember when I was getting started in my career, or just after 2010, when even some burlesque performers were trying to differentiate themselves from the strippers from the club strippers and say like oh what we do is uh like classy stripping it's more theatrical it's not like going to a going to a club and you know us versus them trying to look down on the club strippers Mm -hmm. and i am very glad that most if not all burlesque performers have kind of gotten away from that because we are under the same umbrella even though we are very different so it was just jarring to go back and hear that sentiment from Alan Cumming of all people. (laughs) Yeah, it was the time. It's like what we agree to take part in and call culture. And uh, yeah, it seems like they got him for a few days and he jammed it in between masterpiece mystery introductions. Yes. (laughs) So Allie shows up at the club. She pays her 20 bucks to Alan uh, to get in and she meets her love interest at the bar. I'm just going to call him love interest. And She's like, how do I work in a place like this where I can do music video choreography in lingerie, which is basically what everyone it's like you do that or you sing a big pop song. And that's kind of what burlesque is in this movie. And I and I would love to talk about what burlesque actually is, because I think I kind of know, but I probably don't. And that's really exciting. But he's like, oh, you got to go talk to Tess. Why don't you go interrupt her while she's very busy? (laughs) Just walk backstage while people are getting undressed. Insane. It's like, why not hang out and watch the show and then come back tomorrow at four or something? But no, um, and this movie is all about charging right in. And so she charges in and and is like, hey, I'm going to watch some exposition. And uh, Veronica Mars is playing the villain. I also absolutely love that, like, the, like, bitchy star who Christina Aguilera has to unseat is Kristen Bell, 
who has a beautiful voice and is a queen of what she does, but is, you know, she had just been playing a teenager for 25 years. She was in Frozen. Like, she, it's not as if Christina Aguilera has to take down someone who's known for this kind of thing. She's kind of a soft target. Well, it's funny because before this movie came out, she was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. But I remember watching that and thinking, wow, Kristen Bell could probably play a really good bitch if given the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) And she was given the opportunity in this. And sure enough, yeah, she's good at it. So we have our our big club scene where we we basically set up the stakes of what's going to happen for the rest of the movie, which is that Cher is divorced from the also underutilized, also probably not on set for that many days, Peter Gallagher who's always a pleasure to see, whose eyebrows I have wanted to have sex with since I was like 12. Another criminally underutilized person in this movie, but we love to see him, even if for a second. And also our villain, Marcus Gerber. Mm, The dad from Euphoria. (laughs) Oh my God, yes. And when he showed up on screen, I was like, is that Johnny Knoxville? (laughs) (laughs) And like, I don't even think he really looks like Johnny Knoxville, but that's what I thought. I can see it. I mean, it was dark in there. (laughs) So yeah, I feel like he ends up cast as guys who like have a symmetrical face, but who we suspect of terrible things. (laughs) And in this case, the terrible thing is that he wants to buy the burlesque club and erect a big high rise, a mixed use high rise, which is also like rent. He's like Benjamin Coffin the third here. Oh no. Wine and beer. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) So the stakes are that Cher has basically not paid attention to the finances and double mortgaged the burlesque club and now needs like a million dollars or something in order to save it from being bought out by Eric Dane, the dad from Euphoria. And Stanley <laughs> Tucci is there. And he's just Nigel from The Devil Wears Prada again. Yeah, yes. a softer Nigel. He's like Nigel after he got fired and decided to slow down and he's less stressed, but he's still Nigel. I love Stanley Tucci and everything, but I deeply loved him in this movie. And I thought that he and Cher had wonderful chemistry to the point where I thought yeah. that they were a couple of course. for most of the movie. They are in a way, I guess, right? Yeah. So Stanley Tucci is here. It's just like everybody we know is here doing the things we know them for doing. And so we set up the financial stakes. Allie gets rebuffed when she tries to get a job from Cher because she's, again, very busy. And then she goes out and does kind of my favorite thing this character does which is notice that they're understaffed and just start working there as a waitress and just refuse to not be working there Mm -hmm. i for sure i have done that same thing and i have just been like you guys need help i'm here i know how to do that i know how to Mm -hmm. do work and uh it's never led to bad things so if you're trying to do a thing no no boundaries you have to know the boundaries but you can Mm -hmm. Sometimes you got to just show them. Right. And also, like, people needed drinks, you know? They can't tell you to fuck off if you're getting drinks to tables faster, probably. That's true. And so she goes home. She's been burgled. She goes and finds Cab Girondo, um <laughs> at his beautiful apartment. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. You can tell a woman was recently in this apartment based on how great it looks, I think. Yeah, agreed. We can't have people live in ugly apartments in movies. No. There's so many things in in this movie that are 
a complete fantasy though. Like I've I've just accepted that this movie is in the fantasy genre. Yeah. The nice apartments and also just the scale of the club itself, like the fact that they could hire a full band and a full cast of dancers and have that kind of a set. <laughs> Right. The, I feel like the scale of things feels like it changes at different times, too, because I feel like the because the stage is pretty big. But then you see them doing like a number on it so elaborate that you're like, did it get bigger? Uh-huh. The building got taller. Somehow. Right. Yeah. The stage does change sizes. I'm almost convinced it like becomes the dream stage or something, but mm-hmm. not in an explicit way and like a house of leaves way. And then at one point she's dancing behind the bar and the mirrors behind the bar open. It's gorgeous. Like, I love all of the dance numbers in this movie. I love them very, very much. I just wish we could have seen it more because I didn't like the cuts. They kept cutting mm-hmm. the scenes instead of just letting us watch these, uh, the, the choreography and these dance sequences. You know what's interesting is that, like, you would think it would be obvious that people like dance movies because... People like watching other people dance. It's like uh, absolutely hardwired in us. Mm -hmm. But like this movie doesn't have the courage to be a dance movie, which is clearly what it wants to be. And also cats, you know, the problem, many, there are many, many problems with cats in the movie. (laughs) But one of them was that cats is like a dance musical and they Mm -hmm. weren't really doing that. And like it's people like that. It's not hard to realize. It's weird to not lean into, too, because the entire decade that preceded this was defined by dance movies, like from Coyote Ugly to Save the Last Dance to 100 Step Up movies, like the Mm -hmm. entire decade had a big dance movie (laughs) every year. So people have an appetite for it. Mm -hmm. So Christina Aguilera shows up at Love Interest Jack's beautiful house. She tries to leave, but it's raining. So he's like, come stay. My girlfriend's trying to make it big on Broadway for the last five years. Just come stay with me. It's fine. And so she really wants to be a dancer, but she like doesn't have it share feels. And she like studies up on the history of burlesque and she gets all these books from the library, I guess. I want to see her go to the library. That part's accurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I and many like other performers I've talked to, you know, when you go to your first burlesque show and you, you get the bug, you get hooked, you just immerse yourself, you dive in, you get all the books and watch the documentaries, watch all the YouTube videos. And when this movie came out, there actually wasn't as much of that as there is now, I feel. Mm. So... I did feel like warm and cozy watching that, like warm and fuzzy, because like, oh, I did that. That's nice. I love it whenever anyone like is shown having a big research montage. And I feel like you see it much less with books now. But like, are there like things that you remember learning in your like early kind of research phase that like have stuck with you? Oh, absolutely. This feels like a good time to explain what a burlesque show today is like. Yeah, please. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, because it's it's not what it's like in the movie. <laughs> burlesque shows today, you have a, a host, an MC, uh, usually uh, someone with a comedy background, who will introduce the acts. So one by one, performers will come out and do a song, and the song will involve a striptease. You do that until the show's over. Sometimes there's group acts. Usually there's a variety act or there's a drag performer. And the difference right now, burlesque is really like two categories. It's classic burlesque and neo-burlesque. Classic burlesque is what Gypsy Rose Lee and Josephine Baker did. It's like kind of the glove and gown style you would have seen in the 40s and 50s. And neo-burlesque 
is modern costumes, modern songs. So I learned all of that in the beginning, and we learned where burlesque came from. It started in Europe. It migrated over to America, and it started as a satire. Hmm. The word burlesque actually like means to turn something on its head, mm-hmm. and hmm. it's just the idea of a a beautiful woman who's dressed very uh, I don't I, I don't like using the word classy, but I'll just say it here classy. And mm-hmm. that's coming off. It's like, oh, no, I thought only like not classy girls were supposed to do that. <laughs> but it's just a, a giant middle finger to what we're supposed to do, the way that we're supposed to behave. Mm-hmm. And this is very much like a, a bullet point uh, spark notes version <laughs> of what burlesque means. But I do recognize just like immersing yourself into that when you're after you go to your first burlesque show and just like wanting desperately to be on the stage and wanting to be part of it any way that you can Hmm. yeah and to me i don't know it's very to me it's very intuitive why you would have that response to seeing it but i mean do you feel like you can articulate why the bug is so contagious oh that's a good question you said something earlier about the idea of wanting to be sexy in public and that feeling is a lot more common than I think most people realize. Mm. I've met a lot of people, mostly women, who've said, I wish I could do that. And I asked, well, why don't you? And it's like, oh, because I have kids or because of my job or one reason or another, they feel like they can't. They feel like they have to hide that part of themselves. Mm -hmm. I think there's a freedom to what burlesque performers do. And it's a freedom that I've noticed a lot of people envy. Mm -hmm. I was drawn to it because when I was doing theater growing up, I wasn't a good enough dancer to be like in the dance ensemble. And burlesque was like the first chance I had to really be a soloist again, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I worked with a, with a few directors who weren't very nice. <laughs> but with burlesque, I'm the director. I'm the choreographer. I'm the one telling mm-hmm. the story. I'm the one in control. And I, w- I was fortunate enough to interview Dita Von Tees a couple of years ago. And mm. I asked her, do you ever feel objectified when you're on stage? I remember she said, I know what I put into my shows. Everything down to the lighting is all orchestrated by me. So if people don't respect me for that, then that's their issue. But also, mm. I think there are moments when we want to be objectified. Mm-hmm. Right. But we want it in a controlled environment. Mm. Right. That's the biggest difference between getting catcalled on the street and getting hoot and hollered at while you're on the stage mm-hmm. doing a glove peel is consent and control. Mm-hmm. It's a safe environment. It's controlled. Everybody's in on it and it's fun. And it's exploring a part of us that we all have. Like, I feel like most people enjoy looking at other people with no clothes on. <laughs> and this is a space where it's okay. So that's why I deeply love being part of this space and I think that's why the bug is contagious I feel like you've just I don't know that that articulates something that a lot of people have struggled to sort of make sense of how it applies to their own lives and I feel feel like growing up in kind of 90s feminism there was such a a fairly uncomplicated tone of like well yeah like it's bad to be sexually desired Mm-hmm. or to want to be sexually desired, which is really interesting because that's a not true. And when you put it that way, it again puts all of the blame 
on women for everything as always. <laughs> and in this case, it's like your desires are wrong. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, and also like the, you know, something I thought about a lot is the idea that it's like intrinsically that you're re- like really doing something if you accuse someone of doing it for the attention, mm-hmm. but really that like people need attention to survive in various capacities. And also that like most people want to be looked at at some time for some reason. And then, but then people also like to look at each other, do stuff. So it's not like you're, you don't have to really create a demand for that. It already exists. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I find, I also find that people who use that, who say that sort of thing, you're only doing this for attention. They don't usually have hobbies that they do for attention that are any better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're rarely coming from a place. To your point, we're all doing stuff for attention. Like your version right. isn't better. Well, if I want to avoid attention, you know, I should simply live in a nuclear silo. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yes. I mean, you know, those things can be decorated pretty cute, but Okay, so what happens in burlesque? So yeah, so she studies up the history of burlesque. She auditions. Cher is like, oh, all right, you can be in the chorus line. (laughs) And Stanley Tucci is like continuing to be the angel on her shoulder. And Cher is like, she pulls focus. She stands out. And he's like, imagine that, a girl who stands out. (laughs) A girl who doesn't blend in. It's perfect. And then... Nikki has been drinky drinking on the job. Alex, your your favorite line in this movie is also my favorite line, which is that Cher is like, you can't blame me for getting up in the morning and putting tequila on your Cheerios. Oh, I can't wait till her memoir. Tequila on my Cheerios. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and... Kristen Bell, for some reason, why does she do this? She sabot does she? Yeah, she sabotages the music. Right, because she's supposed to go on on that scene, but she right. shows up late because she probably probably because she's been hitting hitting that bottle, having some tequila and Cheerios. And yeah, so Christina Aguilera is Allie's given the opportunity to perform, and she's sabotaged. It, it a really great, you know, Kristen Bell sends the sound guy down saying that Cher wants to talk to him, and when he's away, she pulls all the mic cables so nothing can happen. Yeah, and so she's like, there's no way Miss Allie Marilyn Rose will be able to figure out a solution for this. And then Christina Aguilera busts out in song because it turns out she has an amazing voice and she tried to tell Cher but Cher was like they don't come here to see you sing ho they come here to see you lip sync to Marilyn yeah and this is apparently a thing that Cher tells everyone all the time every day this is Cher's defining line every morning she's like nobody's here to see you sing This whole scene, I there's so many things that don't make sense. I don't understand why they have a band if they're lip syncing for a lot of songs. I don't understand why they're saying no one's here to see you sing when Cher opened her first scene was her singing. And why do they have microphones that I'm guessing are plugged in? If they're all lip syncing. <laughs> and then are the microphones because picking up them like breathing really hard. <laughs> I don't, uh, 
But I do. But it does create a moment, which is one of my favorite moments in any movies like this. This happens in the movie The Cradle Will Rock, where you think the show's down and then whatever her name is sings the song and it's beautiful and you're surprised. Mm-hmm. Red Dragon's Emily Watson. Red Dragon's Emily Watson. I was like, we just saw her in something. Oh, mm-hmm. I God, I cry every time that happens. Mean Girls, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. What a big problem. The only way we can solve it is if I sing. (laughs) A true theater kid shit is like, how do we get through this? We sing our way out of it. Yeah. It's also like, it's totally reasonable for her to be playing an ingenue at this age. I think that you're kind of 18 until you're 30, especially in pop music. But I think it's just that like... By the time this movie came out, Christina Aguilera had been famous since I was in the fifth grade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it felt like she had been around forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because she had. She's been through so many eras. And it it is like one of the pleasures of this movie to see like diva on diva action. Yeah, there is another version of this movie, I'm sure, where Christina Aguilera just plays the Cher character. But they were like, we got Cher. So let's put her in. Let's move Christina over to Ingenue. Right. (laughs) Jorgensen hangs up. He's like, we got share. So everyone move one down. Everyone move one over. <laughs> Kristen Bell was going to be the ingenue and Stanley Tucci was going to be the bitch. I would watch that in a heartbeat. I, would, I love that as a game is like, take everyone in a movie and just move them one over. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, it's kind of like when they have like leading actors swap roles, like in Kiss of the Spider Woman, they had uh, William Hurt and Raul Julia were originally in the opposite roles. And then they rehearsed it for a few weeks. They're like, want to switch? Let's switch. I don't like mine. It's like when you order the wrong thing at a restaurant. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we'll switch our plate. I'll eat the meatloaf. Yeah, you be the freedom fighter. I'll be the gay guy. (laughs) (laughs) So... So yeah, so she she sings her way through it and then she becomes the new star of the burlesque show. And then really the the two plots for the rest of the movie are Cher's got to save the club and Stanley Tucci is like, you know, Cam Galuli, true love doesn't wait around forever. You got to make a move with Allie. And Cam's like, I have a girlfriend. And Stanley's like, whatever. And Allie starts going out with Eric Dane, which is great because it happens in a montage and they go on many dates. But this way, the movie doesn't have to think of a single thing for them to say to each other because (laughs) clearly they can't figure out what would even happen. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason for this is he's a plot point like he's and he's not even like a romantic plot point. Like he's a real estate plot point. Yeah. The whole reason for their exchange of even getting together is so, so she can take a little piece of information that he leaks and then use it later. And it feels like it. Right. But it goes on for so long. Long. And then, well, and what this movie does that I love is that they go out and the only conversation they have is about the concept of air rights so that she can then explain it to Cher. Yes. And so Cam's girlfriend breaks up with him on the phone while they're at a wedding for Georgia, one of the dancers who got pregnant and just is continuing to work at the club during her whole pregnancy, which I think is the utopian aspect of of this movie whether it happens in real life very much or not i bet it happens sometimes but not very much of the times remy do people work through their pregnancy uh yes actually and they will sometimes do acts emphasizing their belly the bigger that they get it's very beautiful that's fantastic yeah and i've seen some performers work until they are probably eight months eight months pregnant and their belly's huge 
and they have to alter their, you know, use different costumes a little bit. <laughs> but yes, I've seen many burlesque, pregnant burlesque performers. And that's great. They rule. <laughs> Seriously. That's amazing. And I really want to see that. Yeah, there are so many different shapes that you can take clothes off of oh, when yes. you think about it. Well, that's a wonderful thing. I think that's another reason why people get the bug and are drawn to the space because it is all shapes, all sizes, all genders today. Now, if I'm being honest, yes, burlesque back in 2010, it was kind of similar. They, a lot of people, a lot of big producers had very cookie cutter ideas of what burlesque should look like. But that's why people are very drawn to it today is because of the diversity and people celebrating all of the, the different shapes, being able to do a striptease. Yeah, in, in Maine, at least, and I, I'm sure this is the case elsewhere, but in Maine, there was such an overlap between burlesque and punk culture that I think burlesque was really the first place in like a real sort of like cultural space that I experienced like body positivity in action. Like, yep. and by body positivity, I, I don't mean as performance or as theory, but of being like, look, like everyone is welcome here. This is sort of what we're doing. If you're not into it, get the fuck out of here. Absolutely. <laughs> and that was, you know, over 20 years ago. And it was certainly head and shoulders above where everybody else was. Yes. And that's the other. <laughs> I, I hate to keep bringing up where the movie falls short or where it's not like actual burlesque, but it's a good teaching moment. All of the the dancers in the movie, I was getting them mixed up because they all looked so similar. Yeah. And that is still kind of an issue today, especially with shows with um like very big world renowned dance shows like um Crazy Horse in Paris and Moulin Rouge in Paris, The Rockettes. They like the synchronicity. I can understand that from a producer's standpoint in that you want all the costumes to fit as many people as possible. But when I saw Crazy Horse uh, this past December, it was phenomenal. Some of the best dancers in the world on this stage. But I was mm. getting them mixed up because they all looked exactly the same. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this is part of what we kind of think about and accidentally theorize when we think about sort of what is attractive and who finds it attractive and what kind of power are we celebrating here? Exactly. It's difficult and we get very frustrated because there are producers out there who have the budget to put on a show like what we see in the movie with these big stages and the lights and everything, but they are mostly men and they have that same cookie cutter idea of what burlesque should be. And I've talked to audience members who will go see those big, big shows, but then they'll see the smaller shows that we do and it just feels more authentic. I can't speak for everybody and I haven't seen all of the big shows, mm -hmm. but there is uh, an authenticity with performers who produce shows that I find. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that this movie also, you know, there's some definite nods to Cabaret and I think Alan Cumming played the MC in Cabaret on yes. Broadway or something, right? Yeah. Yes. Which is perfect casting. And Liza Minnelli's role in Cabaret is so memorable in the onstage portions, especially because like the show within that movie and then also the movie itself, I think, did a great job of assessing what is she bringing and how do we show that to the best of our ability? You know, and the idea of being a performer who is able to work in a way that sort of is about what you individually can bring feels very different from being kind of a uniform component of something. And then also, you know, the fact that in 2010, 
it's like a very mainstream idea that it's it's really fine to insist that women have basically the same body type and are punished mm-hmm. if they don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so basically, <laughs> Allie and Cam get together. He does his like, he yeah, keeps taking his clothes off while getting cookies. He's just it's like the best scene. <laughs> yeah, it's so sweet and like bubbly and innocent. And I yeah, was really struck by it when I first saw it in theaters and, and this time, too. And they kind of cut through all this like weird misunderstanding that's been going on. And then Allie works out what's going on with Eric Dane, that he's going to try and buy the club and Benjamin cough in it. And so she like rushes up to share like she's always doing. She's like, can you just shut up and listen to me? Do you know what air rights are? And she's like, no, I don't know what air rights are. (laughs) And then basically that afternoon they go talk to a suit and are like Alex you explain this part because it's a business thing yeah they basically Allie has learned earlier in the movie on her date with Eric Dane that in order to have a really great view from his place he bought the air rights to the property across the street from him which means there's a strip mall at the bottom he bought the air rights from the owner which which ultimately means no one can buy that space and put in a tall building obscuring those air rights so mm-hmm. Allie has learned about air rights and she takes that knowledge with Cher to approach the guy who owns the luxury condo development that we're seeing at the beginning of the movie. By the way, it's not even open. It's just in development. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and essentially, is it that they use it to leverage him to buy the air rights over them so that they can't, mm-hmm. they're not an attractive. So if Eric Dane buys the property, he can't develop on it. Right, right exactly. So they pitch the air rights uh, to him so that his condo folks don't have their views obscured and he can't sell his condos for the market price. And uh, through this very thoughtful way of using capitalism for their ends, they win. And also using what you learn on a date with a boring guy. (laughs) And then there's this whole thing with Cam where he's he won a young Nashville songwriting award. He got a little trophy But then he came to L.A. and his dreams were dashed. And now he's always like, my music isn't ready yet. (laughs) And so we finally get to see one of his songs as Christina Aguilera performs it at the very end. And just like with Roger's stupid song in Rent, all that anticipation made it even worse because he really poured his heart into these lyrics. And the lyrics are, get up, get up, show me how you burlesque. (laughs) Get your ass up and show me how you burlesque. (laughs) And that's burlesque and it's great. When I saw, again, just as a burlesque performer watching this, when she said Swarovski bustier and ostrich feather fans, I'm like, no wonder you're broke. Sell the Swarovski bustier. You can save the club. Right? What does this movie do well? I have zero complaints about the choreography like the actual show that they put on is incredible i watched this movie again just to watch the dance sequences and i feel like there's a campiness to this that we celebrate when we do burlesque Mm -hmm. so as you know as much as we hate on the movie i have talked to a lot of other burlesque performers like myself who do have a soft spot for it despite all of its flaws so like we were talking about the similarities between showgirls and this, and these are ultimately movies about, you know, somebody who sees a thing is, is changed by the thing, wants mm-hmm. to become the thing, becomes the thing. What about that resonates with you? So even though I've been 
performing burlesque since about 2011, I still felt like I was holding myself back because I had, you know, the inner critic saying, well, you're not a, you're not a trained dancer. You're never going to perform outside of New Orleans. What are you doing? Uh, you need to make sure you always have a day job to fall back on. And it wasn't until 2018, it wasn't until 2018 when I became a full-time performer. And that was a big leap. And it is terrifying. <laughs> it is so scary to do that, especially because, hey, I don't, we don't have like a real health insurance. We don't have a union. <laughs> it's, uh, mm. um, but it was 100% worth it because... I worked many jobs, like the mundane waitressing job in Iowa. Wasn't always waitressing, but I had desk jobs. I had different retail jobs and everything. And my life now is so exciting and so dream life, and I have to pinch myself constantly. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. Do you think that there's like there's a fear that goes with committing to something that feels authentic to who you are? Thousand percent. Yeah thousand percent especially when because the rest of the world and the systems that we live in would like it much better if we just complied and were alike and you know showed up and did our just desk job or our retail job every day and I feel like that's another reason why I have so many people come up to me saying I wish I could do this uh there is a freedom to it mm-hmm. yeah and well and speaking to your the point about what our overall systems enjoy from us, which is conformity, compliance, not sort of asking any questions. Another whole part of that is like keeping our clothes on under very specific contexts and it's only okay to do the other thing under its sort of purview. Absolutely. What I've always loved about burlesque and the the people I've known who do it is to your point, it's like not just a matter of sort of getting out and performing, but it's shaping the entire performance. It's like creating a narrative around it. It's creating a specific kind of space that invites specific forms of like multi-way consent. Like it's still extremely radical, you know, a hundred years later. Absolutely. Uh, While all genders do participate in burlesque, it is still a very feminine art form. And Mm -hmm. the patriarchy that we live in, it relies on being able to monetize women's sexuality for their benefit as it you know mm-hmm. certain time certain place it's for a carl's jr ad or to make a baby <laughs> exactly that's true so when a woman or a femme presenting person is making her own money doing what she wants to do be it uh, burlesque be it working in a strip club or having an only fans what have you uh it deeply upsets a lot of men <laughs> yeah but no, I think I think that's one of the other radical parts of it is we are using our sexuality, which for so long other people felt entitled to. We're using it for ourselves and we're exploring it ourselves with our own comfort, our own consent, our own terms. I, I don't have a direct metaphor for this, but I watched an episode of Frontline last night about diamonds, basically. And we most people know how diamonds work and that there's like they're not really as valuable as we pretend that they are. But, you know, we started off by pretending they had value and then created a scenario where they actually, this value became real to an extent. And that's based on the diamond cartel operated at least as of 1992. And I'm pretty sure today without really any change by the De Beers Corporation and that it was important after the unification of these diamond mines in South Africa that other diamond producing regions, whether in the continent of Africa or in, you know, Russia or Arkansas, as the case turned out to be later on, that they couldn't really produce commercially because then De Beers couldn't decide how much diamonds were going to be worth. And that there's something like 
kind of worryingly similar there to the idea that like if women, you know, specifically historically and now women and anyone who is, you know, anywhere inside of femme existence or presentation, if they decide their own value, that cannot be <laughs> like, <laughs> like this scenario somehow where like that sexual power can only be sold by people who don't exhibit it themselves, right? Because they get to decide what the value is. And and in this scenario, kind of keep the value low. <laughs> I want to say, this is echoing that. I've been in one burlesque performance. And I it was in 2010, a friend of mine who is a performer asked me to participate. And I was dressed like a preppy. And we were walking, sort of like taking a little date walk on stage. And I make, I'm a, I'm essentially a sex pest. And um, I'm sort of like tossed behind a big cardboard bush and uh, castrated by my friend uh, who was on stage. And then there's, uh, you know, like silk, silk scarfs of blood. It was a very mm -hmm. fun, sort of very fun situation. But I like that that was the, my favorite is that like everyone showed up and they're like, oh, we're going to see. You know, uh, there were some people there who I think were just like, we're going to see this lady get kind of naked. And they saw this play in which someone made a bad move and got castrated. And I uh, love that. Like, that's mm -hmm. the best. And it's to, to your point, Sarah, about being like, there's this reclamation of those terms. Yeah. And that's theater, darling. That is theater, darling. And I guess like this movie, here's to me the kind of the paradox of this movie is that like, it is kind of overly slick and well put together and it does feel a little bit like 2010's soulless and yet it does work and like somehow it like misses the mark in such an interesting way that it comes back around and does have a soul. Yeah. How does that work? I don't know, but I think that that's a, a right on assessment. You remember, I mean, in the lead up to us talking about this, all that I could remember of the movie is the tone being strange. And I'm mm -hmm. realizing now that how you're assessing it as being 2010 soulless is exactly what I was looking for with regard to the tone being strange. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of surprised when it landed as well as it did. Like, I think this movie works very well. Everyone really shows up for their part. Even the guy whose name I don't know, who I think looks like a droog. Um, Cam Gigawatt. <laughs> Yeah, Cam Jigwa. He's show he shows up real uh, everyone shows up and everyone does the thing. And they're cast for what they're good at. And Kristen Bell gets to be a bitch and she's great at that. And they're all people that you're happy to see. Like even right. though they don't give Peter uh, Peter Gallagher much, you're like, oh great, Peter Gallagher's here. Awesome. Mm -hmm. James Brolin is here to help to help save the day at the end. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I wonder if they got James Brolin to be in the movie because the director's name is Stephen Anton, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he played Troy in The Goonies. What? With the, oh. young, with the young Joshua. That is him. He played the, the evil preppy kid, Troy, in The Goonies. What? Wow. The whole reason this uh, movie came to be was because uh, Steven's sister Robin was a pussycat doll. Oh, my God. I forgot the pussycat dolls. Yeah. And back in the early, like, 1995, I think, was when they were established. But they were, like... They were doing burlesque shows where they, you know, did the pinup look and they wore lingerie and I believe a striptease was involved. But then as the years went on, they decided to make the Pussycat Dolls into more of a pop group. Mm. 
All I know about them is a former member is now really into QAnon, and that's not a great well, you know. association, but on a long enough timeline. <laughs> One out of ten pussycat dolls is now into QAnon, it feels I, like. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, on a long enough timeline, like anyone who is vaguely famous in the mid-90s, one out of ten of them is uh, cuckoo bananas. <laughs> yeah. In one way or another. I mean, that's actually, if you're talking about generalized cuckoo bananas, that's like a low estimate, it feels like. Sure. Well, on that note, this is a classic, another classic. We'll have to make a list of these movies. This is a fatherless universe. That's true. That's what make that it makes sense. Do we ever hear anything about Allie's dad? Like we get into her mom, but is her dad just simply She has no one. Yeah. No one. She's been living in the back of Dwight's diner since she was in third grade. She gives herself <laughs> sponge baths with a scrub daddy and she folds herself up and sleeps in a bucket at night. I love that as a routine. She could, she should recreate her life story and that is in it. Well, we know there's no fathers in this universe, but there are one to many daddies, I'm sure. Remy, who, in your view, is the daddy of burlesque? I feel that Cher is the daddy of yeah. burlesque because uh, for as much grief as I and a lot of burlesque performers give this movie, even though we secretly love it, <laughs> I think part of it is we're all very jealous of Cher and this club that she has and just the kind of stage that we wish we could have and her attitude and, you know, and you're in my mirror, why? <laughs> just <laughs> literally being a woman running this entire show, having everybody... Uh, listen to her and respect her. I shares absolutely the daddy to me. Right on. Well, th this is so, this is such an obvious one. And I feel I feel whatever. It's it's obvious for a reason. I'm going with Tooch in this case for many reasons. But again, I just love I love this scene where they finally lean into being like Tooch is gay, even though it could be argued that they've been leaning into it from the beginning. And we see him at a new lover's house. The new lover doesn't know Tooch's actual name. Tooch doesn't know the new lover's name. They have a lovely moment of realizing they don't know each other's names. And then Tooch is like, hey, lover, do you want to stay for lunch? And lover wants that. And Tooch informs lover that he's going to be making lunch. And I, what a what a great Nigelism. <laughs> what do you think he made? <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's a great question. Um, Bruschetta. Bruschetta. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, maybe some of the, I don't know, like caviar on toast. Mm. <laughs> We're going to read the lyrics to the, the song that ends this movie and think about whether Jack could be a daddy. I think probably not, but we need to get to here. We need to look into it. This is a song Jack has been working on for like months, apparently. Underneath the city lights, there is a world few know about where rules don't apply. No. And you can't keep a good girl down. She comes through the club looking for a good time. Gonna make that shake that money on a dime. Don't need a sugar daddy. She can work it just fine. Up on the table. She'll be dancing all night. Hit it up. Get it up. Won't let you rest. Hit it up. Get it up. This is not a test. Hit it up. Get it up. Gotta give me your best. So get your ass up. Show me how you burlesque. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> so is Jack your daddy in this case? Um, I don't know. I think maybe I just have to say Christina because she like, I feel like she's giving it her all in this. And I think that like, this was an interesting move for her because like, I don't mm. think she was really, I don't know her for acting at all. And I know that she did 
some and I want to say she was in the Mickey Mouse Club or something. But like, you know, as a as a pop star of the late 90s, you kind of have to do it all. And so I it makes sense that this is something she has some experience with. But like, regardless of the actual backstory, it feels to me like she was like, I want to star in a huge movie where I do like a classic musical thing. And that I don't think was that intuitive for what she had been doing to this point. And I love that. I think that's cool. Yeah. Agreed. Um, Remy, thank you for bringing us burlesque. It was a blast. Oh, thank you so much for, for watching it. How should people look out for you and, and your stuff? I am at RemyD504 on Instagram, TikTok, and whatever website Twitter is now. <laughs> and I also have a website, RemyD504.com, that has my performance calendar on it. Please come to one of my burlesque shows or another burlesque show in a city near you. Fantastic. And... um. Yeah, get your ass up. Show me how you burlesque, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you, Remy D, for joining us. Thanks, Cher, you know, for all of it. Thanks for all that you do. Thank you for listening to the show. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. We love and appreciate you, Miranda. Thanks for doing uh, what needs to be done in order to make this show live and thrive. Thank you, of course, to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make these episodes sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Find us on social media, all of them. We're on uh, Twitter, Instagram, blue sky threads i'm on tiktok this is alex steed find us over there support us on patreon and apple podcast subscriptions if you will Uh, it really helps out helps us make the show possible helps us make this one of the focuses of our lives and we appreciate that you help make that happen and while we're at it it doesn't hurt to remind that you my friend are good thank you so much for joining us we will talk with you all next week